Hey, everybody, this is episode 50 of Artist Soapbox. Hello, and welcome to Artist Soapbox, a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am Tamara Kassain. Today's candid conversation with Alex Ripp is brimming with questions and ideas. We ranged far and wide from making art in the Triangle to making art in Chile and elsewhere, interdisciplinary work, artists and the academy, and most interesting to me, new ways to engage with performance as audience members, arts writers, and arts practitioners. As you'll hear from Alex, and I agree wholeheartedly, Context is of the utmost importance. Alex Ripp is the Andrew W. Mellon Distill Postdoc Fellow at Carolina Performing Arts, where she oversees multi-semester artist residencies for collaborative research with faculty. She is also a lecturer in UNC's American Studies Department. You may remember the interview with Mellon Distill Fellow Robin Frohart from Episode 27 of this podcast. Alex holds an MFA and DFA in Dramaturgy and Dramatic Criticism from the Yale School of Drama, where she wrote a dissertation on contemporary Chilean theater and memory politics. Alex has served as an associate editor at Yale's Theater Magazine and has published reviews, translations, and articles in Performing Arts Journal, Theater Journal, Theater Magazine, and Fuseboxes Written and Spoken. See the show notes for an extended bio of Alex Ripp. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Alex. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Let's start with your current position at Carolina Performing Arts. What do you do? So I am a postdoc, which generally in the humanities or in sciences in the academy means that you pretty much do a lot of research and usually teach a course. In my case, um, I'm not embedded in a department. So I work at CPA sort of overseeing a program that is, that is tied to my post. Basically my postdoc is embedded within a grant program called distill, which is a four year program to bring, uh, four artist fellows to campus for two to three years, not for the full time off and on collaborating with faculty, on campus to do long-term ongoing collaborative research. And ideally those folks would not be in a, a department that that artist is already working in. So not if it's a musician, not working with another, with a music department. So they are generally quite interdisciplinary. And so I oversee uh, and facilitate that for each artist. And that can take different forms based on who that artist is and what their project is. But I'd say... Generally, it's about matchmaking in the beginning. I mean, I came in when two, um, the two artists, the two first artists, Toshi Regan and Robin Frohart, who was on this podcast, um, <laughs> uh, had already started. So some of the matchmaking had already been done the prior semester. But with the two that are um, just beginning, well, Abigail Washburn began in the spring, and we have a to-be-announced uh, fellow who has been doing a prep week and is coming in the fall. Um, so for that, for them, it was really starting with their basic inquiry, which can be anything. It can be something related to their work in general or something completely new for them. It doesn't have to result in a performance. It will, there are funds and the expectation that there will be something public facing and whether that's, you know, a workshop or a performance or 
um, something digital or something published. It could take a conference, you know, take all those forms. So um, I guess also I would produce and put that all together, um, which I did for Robin and have helped Toshi do. She sort of had a, her first public workshop was not a workshop per se in the sense that she wasn't the center of it, but she facilitated and helped with a book study with um, Spirit House, which is in Durham, and also with a professor who's in Sydney Regional Planning. So it's basically overseeing that program. There's also graduate assistants that help, and I work with NCPA to make those things happen. And I teach a course. Um, I did not teach it last fall, but I'm teaching it this fall in American Studies that is somehow supposed to integrate the work of the distill artists. So a bunch of them will be coming in and we'll be looking at their work. And that is kind of what I do. But I end up doing a lot of other things um, at CPA, especially since we've opened a new space and there's always more work to be done and CPA is growing and looking at new ways of expanding. And so we're all on board for that. (laughs) So... Could you talk more specifically about a distill fellow experience? This is kind of the example of how a grant explodes. I mean, not, not explodes, but how it is always one way in when you write it and then it turns into a different thing. So the idea of distill was that how it's written was that the, the, the fellow would find a faculty member and become embedded in that one faculty member's department and have a graduate student from that department. What has happened, which should give heart to artists everywhere, is that these artists have attracted so much attention <laughs> that they work with multiple, they work with multiple faculty members um, and even community members and staff members. And there's just so much interest in them. You know, like it's like you've given somebody ex- an excuse to do something new that they've never been able to do by themselves, you know? Um, and again, there's always that translation is like, well, you're a researcher. How is this going to work with the artist and how is the artist going to work with you? And, um, but in the case of Robin, you know, there were just so many people that were so excited about her work. And that's kind of how Plasticon came into being was like, well, she was really working really hard with these archaeologists doing this, um, Instagram feed that I think she told you about in her, in her, in your interview with her, that they were interested in cataloging plastic, which hadn't been cataloged at all. And Robin was like, let's just make an Instagram. (laughs) And it became this visual art project that actually did serve their work. So she was working very closely with them. But then, you know, everybody wanted a little piece of Robin. You know, they wanted a class visit or they wanted a workshop or they had an idea. And, you know, so that idea of having one department or faculty member didn't really... uh, hold. And so the idea of Plasticon was like, well, this is basically Robin's solo show with all these various aspects of how she's influenced the campus and people that she'd never worked before, but that were interested in her work or connected to it. The other, I mean, I guess one thing to say is that I really believe in performance as a generator of community. And Robin's a visual artist, but she's also performance. And just the idea of art creating community, that was awesome at Plasticon. It was like, you know, Saturday, a perfect Saturday, and there were little kids there, and there were old people there, and Abby Washburn was there with her baby <laughs> son, and um, and that was so exciting, you know, to see people of all ages just sort of like, and Robin's style is such that it invites a lot of people in, um, and being able to combine the faculty work with sort of a community event was really cool. I mean, the the thing that I like so much about this fellowship is that everyone's work is valued. Yeah. I mean, 
the people in the academy, their work is valued. The yeah. artists, their work is valued. The community, their work is valued. You know, and so everyone had it's very additive. Yeah. Everyone totally adds their thing and a new thing is created and we all can feel good about that. And I think that is the future. I mean silos mm-hmm. are dead. Oh my they god. They don't work anymore. People aren't interested in that. We're all looking forward. We're all looking in the direction of a new opportunity to work interdisciplinary, totally. cross-disciplinary, cross-pollinate, all of that. Yeah. And this is just a great example of that Oh, my happening. God. And faculty are like – they have not talked to other faculty in other departments. You know, it's shock. I mean, it's not shocking. But, I mean, even within my own work, I will almost never go to certain departments – and we're like 20 people, you know? So, and the way that the university is structured, it does not, it does not really allow you time and space or really avenues towards working with other faculty members. And the artists provide that bridge, you know? Mm. So, yes, everybody is against the silos. The silos are dead, even though they're not. <laughs> even but, though they're not. Yeah. They're dead in our imagination. Yeah. <laughs> and it's awesome for the artists. I mean, Robin was like, I think she even said it on this podcast. She's like, this is a dream. To be able to have the resources and these minds. And Toshi has, you know, said similar things. I mean, the UNC faculty is incredible. So it's not just the academics benefiting, you know. How would we do this on a different scale? Hmm. So outside of a university, Hmm. how could this look? Hmm. That's a great question. I mean, it takes money. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, do you mean working interdisciplinarily in the arts. <laughs> One of my many dreams would be to get a team of artists from dis- different disciplines mm-hmm. and come together and create a project that is, again, this additive idea that mm. everyone is adding their sp- special sauce yeah, and yeah, yeah. something amazing. But I think there's also what's missing from that is outside of the arts. So whether mm-hmm. it's Mm-hmm. I don't know, business or research yeah, corporation, yeah, yeah, yeah. some other entity that can then add their expertise. Right. And I know that there are models across the country that are doing this, yeah. but it, it seems I wish I need to do more research. No, it, but you know I, what I mean. I think you're right. I mean, I mean, I think that it's really a fascinating model and idea, and there are definitely people doing it. I mean, one of the things that's exciting about the project with Culture Mill is I know city planners. And they know the city planner of Graham. And they're going to have a meeting with Culture Mill, you know? So, I mean, that's specifically because it's site-specific. But the more you embed, I think it particularly, those sorts of projects particularly lend themselves when there's social justice or there's site-specificity or whatever. But I think that there's real possibility. I think you need to, the inquiry needs to be there to then figure out who should be brought in. Mm-hmm. But, man, I I think that there are, there are many, we can talk about this offline, but yeah. there are many ways that I think that that's exciting for people. You just have to find – really, everyone has to get something out of it, which is the tricky thing. But often people don't know that they want the same things. <laughs> so it's convincing them. We all really want the same thing. It's like – well, it's like Robin yeah. with the plastic and the archaeologist. It's yeah. like you would never think that they wanted the same thing, but actually they found something that really served them both. So – we should find out, figure it out. Yeah. An interdisciplinary working group outside the university. Yeah. Yeah. To be continued. Yeah. <laughs> How did you come to this work? What Would you give us a little bit of your background? Yeah. So I guess like everybody in the arts, I started out as a performer, right? So I was an actress way back. It sounds even weird to say that at this point, but um, 
that was my love. And when I was in college, I sort of shifted into dramaturgy, which is something that, um, I don't think I even knew what it was. And a lot of people don't know what it is, but, um, it really suited me because I was very research oriented. And I found that I was, you know, instead of really working on my, you know, body work or breath work or spontaneity, I just wanted to research and think, where did this person live? Like what was happening at this time? So sort of my eggheadedness, uh, (laughs) worked with dramaturgy more. And uh, I liked, it just fit for me. So I sort of took a detour, went to Thailand, (laughs) (laughs) taught, actually taught theater um, and English there and literature. And that also, so I I realized I like teaching. So that was what I picked up from that. And I, and I'm sort of fascinated, um, not sort of, I am fascinated by the way art works in certain contexts. My grad school classmates always used to make fun of me because my my word, my, the word I would always return to was context. They were like, oh my God, there is a play, you know? And I'm like, but I just care about what's happening around it. Um, anyway, so then I went and I did a literary internship at McCarter Theater and that was like learning how to be a dramaturg and, but in a regional theater context. So it was a lot of research and dramaturgy can mean a lot of different things, but with plays, it's generally also supporting a director's vision and a playwright if it's a new play. So whether that means historical research or sort of giving feedback to what you see or what you read, writing program notes, doing lobby displays, sort of being the in-house critic or the academic in the room, you know, the, the traditional thing is to make actor packets. It's 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 so dorky to be like, this, this is a debate in dramaturgy, but, you know, whether or not actors actually read them, whether they're useful, um, all that is up for debate. But yeah, so I did that and I decided, well, I, I really, I was really into Latin America. I had done my undergraduate work in, um, in Argentine post-dictatorship theater. I wrote a thesis that I, I can't even imagine what it actually said. It was probably didn't know what I was doing, but I was really interested in it. And it was a gap, actually. That was part of the reason it was so hard to write is because I, nobody is actually studying that where I was um, an undergraduate. And I was like, why? I want to know more about what's happening in theater in this, in this context, um, especially coming out of a really troubling, conflicted political situation. What does it mean to, again, back to context, like what does the art or performance mean in this context? So, yeah, so I went to grad school thinking, okay, well, I want to either work at, I kind of still was into the regional theater thing, which is also very funny for me to say at this point. I was like, I'll either be a dramaturg and work in theater or I'll be an academic. I don't know which one. And so I really wanted to go to Yale because it was the one place where you could get an MFA or one of the few, actually, I think it is the one place where you can get an MFA in dramaturgy and dramatic criticism. So being a critic is also being a dramaturg, which is not something I had ever thought about. Or you could continue on for a doctorate. And I was like, well, I'll have my options open. So that's what I did. And uh, so I was there for seven years. And I did write about Latin American theater. um, But I switched to Chile, which had even less work done on it than Argentina. Um, and looking at contemporary theater and also post-dictatorship memory politics. And then um, while I was in grad school, I was working for a festival in New Haven called the International Festival of Arts and Ideas. And it was kind of like the best summer gig. You know, we all, um, many of us in the drama school worked for um, for it because you got to work with artists. You, you know, you got to stay in New Haven. It was kind of quick and dirty and 
crazy and you got to see amazing work. So, you know, I started out kind of like doing the dirty work, taking care of artists, you know, carrying Mark Morris's bags or I don't know what. I mean, like all the glamorous, all the glamorous stuff. And then I ended up, it was arts and ideas for a reason. So there was the arts programming and there was the ideas programming, which was um, lectures and panels um, about sort of thematically linked to whatever was being presented on stage. And so I ended up producing that for a couple of years. And then the director of programming who was programming both the arts and ideas left. And she was very kind, Kathy Edwards. And she said, do you want to program ideas? So I did it. And it was so fun because especially doing a dissertation, you were like, oh my God, I get to just sort of read the New Yorker and see who's cool. Who do I bring? And how does this relate to, again, context? It's like, how do you bolster whatever's on stage with the conversations that are happening um, in that same week? So it was two weeks um, out of the summer, this festival. And uh, I liked it. You know, I liked the pace. I liked, I think, especially the solitary work of dissertation. I liked being in office. But I liked that it was also thinking work, you know? So then I had, like, you know, I was pretty sure at this point I didn't want to be a dramaturg in regional theater. My taste became much more experimental um, in grad school, thanks to my teachers and colleagues. And I got way more interested in dance and performance art and all that. And, you know, to be a dramaturg in the American theater, (sighs) to be a dramaturg in the American theater is hard enough, but it's really, I think, confined. It's way more informal. Like there aren't positions in theaters unless it's a regional theater. And then you're a literary manager and that's a whole other you know, it implies a whole other script submissions and vetting. And I wasn't interested in that. So anyway, all this to say, finding a real dramaturgy job in experimental theater or performance art is, I don't know. I think a lot of people do it informally, but it feels very like a freelance. Yeah. Yeah. Experience. Totally. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a luxury, mm-hmm. at least in our country. <laughs> in other countries, dramaturgs, I mean, in Germany, dramaturgs are the most, one of the most powerful, you know, positions in the room. Hmm. But in our country, it's sort of, I don't know, it's sort of seen as expendable, like a nice thing to have. Absolutely. Yeah. Why in Germany are they the most powerful position? In well, the I don't know if they're the most powerful, but dramaturgy was invented in Germany. Okay. And, um, and I think it also has something to do with the way culture is funded there, um, the way culture is understood there. It's super institutional and it's super well-funded by the government, you right. know? So it's, it's a truth, but it is like a national tradition, you mm-hmm. know, to have a dramaturg and it's a respected position. So I was doing all this sort of administrative work, but I was really enjoying the curating. Um, and I was lucky because I had a lot of autonomy. So again, I was reached, reached this juncture where I was like, okay, I could, I could, I have these various things. Why don't I not give up any of them? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Refuse to decide. Right. And so this postdoc was perfect for that. You know, I, I really like teaching. I would get to teach. Um, I would have a library. I would still sort of sort of be in the academic world, but I would be supporting artists and I would be working in an, or- in an organization that was presenting work. And that was really exciting to me. So again, sort of doing a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I find myself. <laughs> a long way of saying. That's it all comes it. together. It though. all I comes mean, together. And, and of course, we see 
in hindsight. Yeah. The, the themes and the threads running through our lives yeah. that kind of bring us to where we are. And I, I want to talk about the class that you're teaching yeah. this fall, which is for you a new class. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I have the description here, and I want to read a little bit of it. Now, this is – you're offering this through American Studies mm-hmm. Department, and it is a service learning course called Performance in Public. And this is from the description. It is easy to think of performances as distinct and autonomous. This dance, that concert, this play. Yet no art exists apart from the venue in which it is presented, the people who consume it, nor the society in which it is made and shown. What does that mean? <laughs> I think it's, again, it's like my obsession with yes, context. Yes, we're going to talk about context a lot in this. I so know. Let's start. Let's <laughs> You're going to forget right the now. art actually exists. <laughs> So I think I was thinking on my way over here, like, um, about one of the inspirations for the class was actually a friend of mine, Ann Irby, who works at Yale and was a classmate of mine um, in dramaturgy school. And she teaches playwrights. And she was teaching them sort of in a separate way. It's, it was different because they're, they're, te- they're working on texts, right? But the idea being of her course that, you know, to also to give them control over their work. It's like, don't just think of it as a text that you send to a theater. Like, think about the surround. Think about the art as an event. And I think I sort of, especially coming to a new place, especially coming here, especially having been in Chile and Argentina and um, and places that I've been able to contrast with the New York world, which, which seems almost like placeless, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? in terms of like where it's being presented, it's such a global city. Right. So I was thinking about sort of that idea, which I thought was really smart and just thinking about that with just performance, you know, like that you might think that what's on stage is, is the performance, but it's everything else. It's how you receive the marketing. It's how the, how the funding works, you know, like, how did this come into being? Uh, well, it became to being because it was funded by this grant, which asks you to, you know, follow these guidelines and you have to define X, Y, and Z in advance. It, you know, the performance is also made up of the audience experience with one another. It's made up with the building. It's made up with, there's just so many things, you know? And so, and in fact, another version of this class, which I was going to teach for dramatic um, department of dramatic art, there's another version of this class in which is a theater history class. Mm -hmm. So you start with the Greeks and you say, well, we think that we have this idea of theater as something that you wouldn't even question that you sit in a theater, the lights go out, you sit in your seat. It is this cook, you know, this, um, what do they call proscenium arch? We have all these conventions of curtains and clapping and how much tickets cost and da, 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 da. It's really a blip, you know? I mean, it's now sort of the norm, but you go back to the Greeks, you go back to medieval theater, you go back to, um, you know, even Shakespeare, the way the globe was, was, Mm -hmm. it was totally different. And so when I'm, you know, and so the class does now and did before go into sort of like the sixties and thinking about, um, experiments that happened in New York at that time, you know, happenings and da, 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 da. And then moves into what we think of as experimental theater now. So like participatory, immersive, art of social practice. So, and how we think about all that is new, but really the roots have existed for a long time. And so I think with the class, the goal is just to, 
I, I divert to just say that it's also very much like a performance studies approach to thinking about performance. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really a performance studies person. I mean, I know enough, but I do really love the idea of thinking of the, everything as as part of the performance. Mm-hmm. And again, context. So like what the socio-political implications of all of that, I think is fascinating. You know, like I was driving on the way over here, listening to a podcast, <laughs> Hyperallergic is this uh, arts, it's an arts online um, platform and they have a podcast and they were, the, the post was interviewing the MoMA workers who are now on strike. So, you know, you might go to MoMA and not even think about what's happening, but like thinking about the labor issues and, uh, the finance, the art market, you know, like the financial disparities right. between how much these institutions are, are worth and how much the, the laborers get and thinking about the, I mean, you can go in so many different directions, you know, um, how we value art, how we value people, how we, you know, it's all, it's all connected. You could spin out into many different ways from the performance or the piece of art itself. Is one of the goals of this class just to help students become aware mm-hmm. of the bigger picture of all of these variables that affect the art yeah. that they're seeing? Yeah. And kind of just to go into something and just not take it for granted. I think we just, and I am also guilty of this, just do things on autopilot. You know, if you actually think the simplest way is to just think like you're an alien coming to earth mm-hmm. <laughs> and you watch people doing these things and they don't make sense unless you understand them as conventional behavior. Right. So I think just, I hope that they will dissect things as part and parcel of their surroundings mm-hmm. and critique things um, and not just take things for granted, you know, and that that's just a life skill. <laughs> well, it also I mean, I think it affects the way you critique something. Right. If you dig into why the art is that way. Yes. You yes. Know? yes. Like why yes. it is located in a particular space. Mm-hmm. Why, you know, what kind of resources are available to the people making it. Yeah. Um, where it is in the process. All yeah. of these things factor into mm-hmm. what you're seeing on stage. And if you take it just at face value, I think it's really easy for us to make faulty assumptions or conclusions and not have the depth of experience that we could have. Right. If we have a real, like, more holistic view of what's gone into the piece. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think also it's, like, um, part of my interest in general, I just think it's important to demystify experimental practice. Think about what the conventions are you have to know what the conventions are in order to understand how they're being broken. And, uh, and also that confusion is part of it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so I think like participatory and immersive, et cetera, um, artificial practice, like it's not handing you a product, you're part of it. And so you can't get it right. <laughs> before the fact. Right. And I think just a little bit of discomfort is yeah. part of the experience. Yeah. It's not, and so it shouldn't be off-putting. It's, like, supposed to be happening. Yeah. You know? And it's also supposed to be uncomfortable. Right. Like, I hate participating in Me stuff. too. <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> but to, just briefly about the course, um, I'm working with Culture Mill, um, and they're – it's a service learning course, course, so the students have to do 30 hours of perform- performance – well, maybe performance um, – service learning work. And they can – you know, I could have picked – any organization or multiple organizations in culture mill I've come to know. And I'm, and I think that the way that they think about place 
specifically, I mean, they say it on their website, I think, like specifically rooted in Saxe-Baha is uh, indicative of, you know, many of the course principles that I'm trying to teach. And they're working on a site-specific, you know, the students might be helping with that, but they might be helping with their general programming and operations. And I just think they're a good example of thoughtfully picking a place and thoughtfully engaging the people who live around them. Mm -hmm. You relate a conversation that you had with Ginger Wag, who's a choreographer, a local choreographer, Mm -hmm. and it was about making work in warehouse spaces. (laughs) And I think the, the question came up, do you make work in a warehouse because it's there or because it's the perfect place to state that work? I think that's a really interesting question to ask right now, Mm -hmm. given the space that we have available to us as artists. Yeah. Um, I know I've had these conversations with some uh, other choreographers about needing to find space that, that meets certain requirements, like a sprung floor, for example, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which you really, really need to have as, as dancers. And, and so if you, if your warehouse is your only choice, you have to bring the floor in and that's a whole series of other challenges to getting to being in that space. And I think knowing the answer to that question can give audience members interesting insight Mm -hmm. into the artistic process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think ideally the artist would know, you know, I mean, sure, you're going to be forced to go to some weird places, but I feel that it's stronger if you make the choice to make that intentional, you know, and not just say, well, this is the place I can do it. Right. Um, or if the, the idea is that this is the place that you have to do it and that's uncomfortable, then, then lean into that. You can highlight the fact that there's no space to do your art and that's a whole other statement, you know? Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. Just being intentional about that seems important to me. Yeah. Well, I think what you're inviting people to do again is to, Consider all the variables, all the, all the context, and then embrace that. Yeah. At the very least, you know, this is what we have to work with. So let's work with it instead of ignoring it. Like it's not happening. Right. You know, so if people, for example, I mean, this is a random idea that I'm having in my mind right now. (laughs) For example, you talk about, you know, people being on, being on strike. If the strike is happening outside of a performance, instead of pretending like it's not happening, it needs to be addressed. And Mm -hmm. I see this a lot. Uh, in rehearsal, mm. when there are events happening in the wider world, and we ign- we ignore them in the yeah. rehearsal space, even though people are entering the rehearsal space mm-hmm. and feeling the weight of that. Mm. And I think we need to remember that these are not discrete, isolated experiences. Yeah. They're all woven into the fabric of the world we live in. And yeah. so why not acknowledge them? Right. And maybe even integrate them (laughs) into the experience. Yeah. But it's tough. You know, I, I relate this back to just a conventional theater experience where a phone goes off or somebody laughs or makes a weird sound at an inopportune time. It's like, you have to decide (laughs) how you can handle this. Yeah. Do you just ignore it? And that's a, that's a fine choice and might be the right choice. Um, it's not an exact analogy, but you know, performance doesn't exist in a bubble. Right. So I mean, I think that's the exciting thing about performance. Right. Uh, it's also a challenge. <laughs> In our conversation about the podcast interview, you spoke about the translation that you've done mm-hmm. um, of the Chilean plays. And you said that I actually think a lot of what I do and I'm interested in is about translation. Mm-hmm. What did you mean by that? So when you translate, as 
it might be evident. You have the original text and you have to, I'm going to say the word again. You have it. You're going to put it in a different context. (laughs) So uh, if you're somebody interested in words, it's also fascinating to think about like, you know, which word works here and doesn't work here. Um, does this, does this expression or this syntax actually exist in a, in a functional way in this language for this audience? I think when you're moving between the academy and the non-academy or the academy and the arts, there's a friction. How do you bring heady ideas Mm -hmm. to audiences that are not academics? That's some of the work that I was doing at Arts and Ideas, you know, was thinking about these are big ideas. My audience was not the Yale audience, that made me flip. You know, I would go from the school year to the summer. And and in fact, I was really interested in bringing difficult ideas to younger audiences, to more diverse audiences. New Haven is a really diverse city with a whole bunch of different demographic groups. Because um, when, when it clears out, as it does in the summer, you're not going to have an audience for talking about Heidegger or whatever. Right, right. <laughs> And, and if you want to talk about Heidegger, then make it accessible. Right. I, I just like that challenge. And I like finding the balance between rigor and, uh, and accessibility. That's in the particular academic versus non-academic sphere. I think in general at my job, um, working between the academy, now increasingly the community, and, uh, and the arts – there's not that much actual shared vocabulary. I mean, there is, but not not as a rule. And sometimes the changes are slight. And sometimes it's not even about language. Sometimes it's just about communication styles or working styles. You know, artists work differently than academics. There are different timelines. There are different pressures. Same with community. And I like, I just find it interesting. So, and I'm working on my translation skills, you know, mm-hmm. uh, as even though I'm speaking English all the time, there's just, they're just different realms. And I think that they can really enrich one another, but I think there are barriers. I think in the, and I'm using air quotes here, business world, having an avatar or an audience mm-hmm. is something that you strive for to be able to mm-hmm. focus in on the, these are the people I'm trying to talk to. These are the people who are interested in what I have to offer. And I don't think there's anything wrong with extending that to the arts mm-hmm. and really having a sense of your audience for a particular communication or a particular oh, show totally. or you know what I mean I think that we need to be doing that and to be able to toggle between the different audiences and the different people so that there can be that kind of interest and accessibility that you're talking about yeah, yeah you know it has yeah. you have to be very intentional about that and yeah. again going back to what we were talking about before, sort of lean into yeah. what is in front of you and who it, who is there. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And find things that should be translated and something shouldn't be. You know, like there's some place I could never translate. It's just too Chilean. I probably don't even know how to, the words, you know, yeah. it's a slang. So those things I can't, gosh, this leads me into like a whole other direction about like how you market something from another country. You know, like you have to find the universal, which is a word I really don't like, but there's something to that, that some things translate and some things don't. Mm. And sometimes the things that should be seen won't be seen by everybody. You know what I mean? Mm. Or think the things that you think have the most artistic integrity don't, will not read that way to everybody in the world. Do you have an example or a story? Or yeah, there's this play that I, 
I can't, I can't even read it to be honest. It's a play called Hans Poso that's Chilean and it sort of made a huge uproar. I mean, it, it caused a lot of um, stir and interest and um, when it was produced in Chile and it's a playwright that I was interested in and I just, is the slang, the, 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 <laughs> I'm going to say it again, the context of the story, what that story was, who those people were. It's just innate to people who live in Santiago. They get it. They actually lived it. You know, they read the news. I don't know how how to bring that elsewhere. Hmm. Not just about the language, you know. Right. Um, and sometimes that, you know, situations like that kind of sometimes make me sad. I think like, oh, I wish that I could help this playwright show his work to more people. But it's also like some playwrights don't necessarily want to be, I don't know about him, but some playwrights make work for where they are. (laughs) Right. Gosh, the word, it's the context, (laughs) you know, and some plays, some artists want to want to make, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't assume to know what they want when they set out, but surely there must be some that think, well, I want to go international with this one. So I'm not going to make it about, something that's inaccessible. And one of the, one of the companies I work with um, or I was working with on my dissertation was more like that. Like they would, they were, they weren't really thinking about those aspirations and their work was different because of it. You know, is that what you mean by memory politics? Memory politics is, is like, uh, it's so funny. It's just like a term I use all the time because it's just the shortest way to say like, um, what I do. I think it's, it's about, Uh, In Chile, it's about the complications of dealing with memory in the political situation and using memory to like to leverage different political interests or um, because when you when Chile left dictatorship, the idea of how to deal with the memory of what happened became really politicized because it was fractious, because there were different opinions and so the government had a certain rhetoric and a certain line. And to divert from that was a different political statement. And I think, I mean, even I, I was just reading um, recently, Chile has switched back to a right-wing government. Chile was under dictatorship for 17 years under a very neoliberal regime. And the the ruling group and party was never really taken to task judicially, although there were thousands of deaths and exiles and yada, yada. So anyway, new newish president, he installed a new minister of culture who a few days ago said that the museum of memory, which is a beautiful museum, which tells a very in-depth story of the dictatorship honors the victims in a really beautiful way. He said it was, it's funny that the theater word is called a montaje, which actually means like a staging. Um, and he said it's a leftist agenda. It makes people feel shocked. It's it's designed so they don't think. You know, this was the dictatorship ended in 1990, and this has like politis. You know, they want him out of power. Artists are gathering. There's real uproar about it. And so the way in which memory still holds deep political weight in Chile because it it was never really sorted out in the courts, mm-hmm. political and cultural weight. You know that memory. And how does that show up or how did it show up in the theater? Well, my whole dissertation is kind of about like thinking about it dramaturgically. So the idea that when the the new government came to power and it was a very sort of like compromise between um, between the ruling military government and the new democratic government, you know, 
the way that they dealt with it was sort of not dealing with it by saying, okay, that happened. Let's move on. And it was sort of like forward into the future all together, all united. And so basically my contention was looking at uh, after Pinochet's arrest for the first time, which was eight years after the dictatorship and in London, that subjective histories that deviated from that started to show up. And Mm -hmm. you could see it in theater and the way that narrative was treated and Mm -hmm. character and history as sort of more fractured, actually, and subjective and multivalent. I actually dive, I actually was not super interested in looking at plays about dictatorship, although there are many, mm-hmm. because I think, I think that Latin American theater often gets sort of categorized as trauma-based, and that's the story, it's all about dictatorship. And I just think it's more sophisticated, and there's a lot more nuance. And surely that dictatorship has contributed to the way people think which is, you know, what I see. Um, but I look, I'm more interested in structurally, not just subject matter, although that, that comes into play too. So speaking of structure, <laughs> in a way, yeah, <laughs> I want to read to you, read to our listeners, something that you wrote on Facebook. Uh-oh, what did I say? <laughs> this is from several, many months ago. Okay. So, oh, I know what you're going to say. Maybe your position has changed. Okay. You wrote, I've been talking these last weeks with friends and colleagues about the state of arts criticism in the NC Triangle and why its relative absence, with a few exceptions, really does matter. And then you referenced an article that brought up some relevant points around the value of arts criticism. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about why you think arts criticism matters? Yeah. Even even in a smaller community like ours. Yeah, I think, first of all, I want to say, like, shout out to the indie because they do amazing work. But I think they're the only people writing, right, about performance. Yeah, there are a few others that are kind okay. of sporadic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But that sort of sustained engagement is, um, they really are holding it up. <laughs> so... I think, and I, you know, I'm not an artist, but I think it's really hard to make things in a void. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to get feedback. And I think it's really important to hear how people who understand, I don't even want to say understand art, but are thoughtful and critical spectators and absorbers of art um, respond to your work. I think that's really valuable. And I think it's, uh, I think in my mind that the ecosphere works best when there's criticism and art going sort of feeding one another. Hmm. You know? Say more about that. Well, I think that obviously the arts propel critics to write, right? But the critics, the critics' work should also propel the artists to think about their work. Hmm. And so in a way, ideally in my in my mind, it's a kind of back and forth in which the two are always kind of challenging and supporting one another, you know? I think that especially as I From what I perceive, there's... Well, let me know. Do you feel like there's more experimental work in the triangle now? Yes. Okay. So that was my suspicion. I think for new audiences in particular, for audiences that are new to that kind of work, having not someone to tell you what it means, but guideposts how to engage with it is really helpful. And to, because I think also the best critics will also teach you not only how to see art, but how to see it connected to life. You know, it's not really about thumbs up, thumbs down. It's not actually at all, although that's the system that we have. 
because that's how people read criticism. It's really about thinking. And um, I think the best criticism teaches you how to spend time with art, how to engage with the difficulty of a lot of it, especially experimental work. Um, and I think also the best criticism is, is its own art and that it's a, it's a practice like any other. And so I think for writers here, I imagine there's a desire to exercise that muscle. Um, yeah, I just think the two really work that the making of art and the, and the writing about, and I say writing, but I also do mean some sort of discourse about the art. They're just kind of inseparable in the best of circumstances. And I don't, you know, you're an artist in the triangle. So, I mean, I'm curious, I've spoken to artists and they saying, yeah, I'd love that. Now the reality, of course, is that people want coverage for other reasons. Right. <laughs> and that's a whole other situation, I think. But it's not one to forget, you know, um, giving people visibility for grants, for whatever. Yes, it is true that having those thumbs up, having yeah. those pull quotes, having that press coverage really positions you well to get the people in the door, which yeah. and that pays the bills to get the grants. I mean, it, it's challenging because there are few opportunities to have press coverage. If the only press that you get leans negatively, then you're kind of screwed for, you know, trying to promote that work moving forward. And so, you know, my question is around how we set up the relationship between arts criticism and artists that is not contentious, Mm -hmm. that is promoting both, because I think it can very quickly Mm -hmm. go there even when we don't want it to. Yeah. So do you have ideas about that? Well, I can only speak a little bit from experience. And it. And I was thinking about this recently because I was thinking that it's really helpful to have somebody, I don't want to say in your corner because I don't want to say it, it's thumbs up, but somebody who's a writer, and I feel that I was this for some of the people that I wrote about um, or have written about, somebody who gets your work and is invested in it who can do an interview with you for a magazine who can, who wants to write about your work. For me, it's like translating. If I want to work with you and you want to work with me and I believe your work in your Chilean and I want your work to be in the U S I want to translate your work, you know? So I think um, for me, it's like something about, I don't know exactly what the form is that it takes, but I do think that having a writer that gets you, can be useful because that person probably will be a sort of dramaturg for you too. So whether or not they produce articles, they'll probably be your best reader and your Mm -hmm. best like dress rehearsal viewer Mm -hmm. (laughs) and somebody that you could actually, whether or not this is publicly shared, their criticisms of you, um, somebody who you feel like you can get feedback from. And even if it's like, eh, that didn't work, that you understand it and that Mm -hmm. you're both coming from like a place of, so I guess that's the sort of dramaturgical relationship and maybe not, maybe not a fully like critic, um, artist relationship, but I don't know. There's some version of that that sounds exciting to me mm-hmm. as a writer. When I find somebody that I'm really excited about, it's like I write a dissertation on them. Right. Right. <laughs> you know? right. And I mean, I have absolutely seen cases where critics have championed the works of certain companies or certain people in this community. And it has been hugely beneficial. I mean, yeah. just the encouragement alone, yeah. it, it does wonders. And so I, I absolutely, I've benefited that 
from that myself. And right. so I, it's wonderful. And feeling like somebody gets you yeah. and can encourage other people to get you mm-hmm. is just, you know, it's what we're all looking for. Yeah. Um, I just wish that there was a healthier way of making it all work. And, yeah. and I don't know. I mean, I don't know if part of it is a little bit what you're talking about, which is switching front loading it a little mm-hmm, bit mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. instead of just like the re- the review at the end and it's it w- which feels like right. a, which feels like a verdict yeah, you know what totally. i mean it's like guilty not guilty you know yeah. um and you're like i only have one more weekend why did you do this <laughs> yes, yes or i don't have any more weekends and this is what people are going to remember yeah, you know yeah. um so instead of having that at the end rather i don't know having previews no or, i see what you're saying yeah. where it's not like um it's not a coverage model. Yes. You know? So like, so I was, uh, worked for a while at a journal and that's a different thought process. Cause it's like, it doesn't matter when the show is. And if you want to get this review to people to see if they want to see it, it's like, it's going to take a long time. Mm-hmm. So let's pick the thing we want to write about. <laughs> you know, I mean, real print journalism doesn't have that luxury because it's about coverage and you kind of want to tell people yay or nay. Right. So it's kind of a whole different way of thinking about and maybe it's not even called criticism, you know? It's Maybe it's arts writing. Yeah. That could be cool. Right. But it's a slower burn, and it means that you pick what you want. Yeah. And it seems like we need both. Yeah. Because we do need – I mean, the calendar notices and the promoting and the mm-hmm. press, like, for the shows that are happening in real time, basically, we, we have to have that. That's yeah. how people show up. Right. Uh, and there's so much going on, and people ha- – you know, we want them to be aware of so many – arts events that are happening in this community, but you just can't, you can't go as deep. Yeah, no, it's hard. And I am so acutely aware of being new here. And that's part of the reason I just like somebody, if if you're an artist, if you're a writer, can I talk to you? (laughs) Tell me what's going (laughs) on. (laughs) Because I, I, you know, I am hesitant to sort of say, this is what should happen. I mean, every context, this is, this is, I mean, I've been here a year, but it still feels new. And there's still so many people I haven't met and so many things I don't know. But, you know, in a world divorced of context and the needs of this particular community and the realities of timing and yada, yada, like, that's my, you know, platonic ideal (laughs) of criticism. Well, and we're having major transition here. Yeah. Things are changing very rapidly and have in the past five, 10 years. Yeah. So the landscape looks really different and people are trying to position themselves. I know. And I think that might necessitate new ways of doing things. Yeah. And I mean, my basic sense is that there's so much art, the writing just can't keep up. Yeah. You know, or the, the, the writing venues don't exist yet. Right. So it's sort of a sense of one outpacing the other. And that will always be the case, but. But I'm interested in thinking about more experimental ways of criticism. Claudia LaRocca, who's a, a who's a dance critic for the Times and now runs her own um, online platform at SF MoMA, had a blog called The Performance Club, and it was she's a poet too. So the way that she wrote those reviews was very very different, or whatever they were. I don't even know if you could call them reviews, and maybe they weren't even edited. You know that some of them were like letters to the performers. I don't know. That excites me. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't consider myself a creative writer at all, but I like the idea. I like editing. So right. <laughs> I'd welcome editing as another form of dramaturgy, I think, of supporting people that are, again, with thinking about criticism as a creative act itself. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm like stewing in all these ideas and still talking to a lot of people. So figuring it out. It's an exciting time to be here. I'll say that. Yes. Yes. To think about other models 
is very exciting. I mean, to, to even think that somebody would write, uh, would have a response. Right. <laughs> to your work. You know, I mean, oh, it sounds God. ridiculous, but like truly. Yeah. Those are, they're like little gems, you know, mm. just having somebody write a thing, say a thing. Right. You know? It's like doing it in a void. It's, yes. it's not the way performance is supposed to be. I mean, that's the other thing about like the class, right? Is performance doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists with an audience, you know, that's the primary thing. And, uh, I get very frustrated. And I think every dramaturg who's been asked to do a talk back, gets very frustrated with the idea of a talk back. Mm. In theory, it's great. It's great. You know, the audience can ask questions. The artist can ask questions of the audience, but they're never planned. They're always last minute. They, sometimes the moderators never met the artist. you know, they do a few questions. How did you make this? Uh, what was the process? How's this like your other work? And then they open it up to the audience and the audience kind of, I mean, not all audiences, but the questions can, can vary in well, terms of quality. Often uninformed. Totally. And so I think that's another critical mode, right? Is like, how do we engage audiences after a show creatively or before a show creatively? How do we, Alex? I don't know. You know, <laughs> the dramaturg, the Dramaturgs do lobby displays and write program notes. And the f- my fear of writing program notes is always like, if you're me, you come five minutes late to every show. You don't read the program. <laughs> so I don't trust that model always. But I think there are so many, you know, I went to a play in Chile that a friend of mine, some friends of mine did in there. It was in a found space. And they didn't start the show till 8.30, although you come at, the ticket says 8. So you come and uh, there's a sort of cavern and they had all these, their dramaturg put together all these interactive materials and pieces from their research and, and like videos. And, you know, so you had to interact with that before seeing the play. I don't know. There, there are ways, but it is more work for everybody. Yeah. But, uh, that's something I'm also thinking about, you know, cause everyone hates a, a rote talk back. <laughs> yes. We love the idea. We love the idea. And then, often dislike the experience right and then i'm also like so is it incumbent on the artist then to sort of help with that process or does the dramaturg sort of take control of that as their own creative work um because there are some cool things that you could do but yes very much thinking about whether here or elsewhere ways that we that audiences and whether they be the critics or not respond to artists and how artists talk to their audiences and Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Of course. For being here. I really appreciate it. No problem. And Thank you for doing this. I'm, ex- I'm excited to see where oh this next gosh. year takes you. Thank you. Artist Soapbox is a listener supported podcast. Your support is essential to the continuance of this podcast. Please share these episodes with your friends and support the podcast via our Patreon page, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash artist soapbox, where you can make a small monthly donation to keep this podcast going. Thanks so much, and we're out.